1: It's hard to believe that we've been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since
0: 2011. You're telling me producing this show week after week requires a ton of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies we've covered.
1: Just visit thenextreel.com slash originals. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great conversations.
0: I was so excited for our big Star Trek film franchise series this season. All those movies adapted from Gene Roddenberry's original 1960s TV show.
1: As a huge fan, I know that you geeked out over analyzing the adaptations.
0: Absolutely. From the motion picture to the Kelvin timeline films, seeing the Enterprise crews on the big screen was a dream come true. Our list
1: of source material isn't just all books and plays. We have the original series in our list of source material. You can rent the episodes to watch and enjoy and support the show in the process.
0: For our Millennium Trilogy series, we covered films adapted from the original books that launched Lisbeth Salander, The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, The Girl Who Played with Fire, and The Girl Who Kicked the Hornet's Nest.
1: As much as I love Fincher's version, the original Swedish versions are the way to go. We also did our Die Hard series in Season 7.
0: I can't believe Die Hard and Die Hard 2 were adaptations! Two of the greatest action movies ever. Well, one of them, at least.
1: The other is awfully fun, though. We revisited the classic Mary Poppins for our 1960s movie musical series. A Spoonful of Sugar Always Helps the Medicine Go Down.
0: Old Boy was intense for our Park Chan-wook Vengeance Trilogy. And East of Eden and Giant were highlights of our James Dean series.
1: And a fun time travel mind-bender with predestination to cap
0: things off. Find all the books behind these adaptations and more at thenextreel.com slash originals.
1: Dive into the source material for your favorite movies. Check it out today, thenextreel.com slash originals.
0: Well, this is certainly the most operatic of trailers (laughs) of the set of trailers that we've seen for Die Hard. Would you agree? I guess I could see that. Uh, I mean, you know.
1: I mean, big spectacle. Big it's, spectacle.
0: You know. They've got they've got the music with the chorus. They've got uh, where we we like, oh, They've got "Ode to Joy" in there. It's a it is a very dramatic spectacle of a trailer, and par for the course. They give away everything, <laughs> everything, Andy. Yeah, they
1: there there's uh, not a moment of action that isn't uh, hinted at. Hinted, hinted <laughs> at. Well, some okay, some are
0: hinted and some are flat out, you know, exposed. <laughs> <laughs> It was an exciting trailer, and I think they actually did they, – they accomplished something that they, that they clearly were trying to do, which is to play off the fact that John McClane is now, after 10 years, an, an iconic – such an iconic uh, action character that they don't need to tell you who he is up front. And the first thing we get uh, of McClane is just him saying, I'll take it from here. Uh, and, and we don't even know it's a McLean until late in the trailer. Yeah, it was interesting
1: because it really sets up the story. The first 30 seconds, it's really about the fire sale and Gabriel's plan and all of that. Right. And it plays really interesting where you don't know it's a diehard movie. And even after you see Bruce Willis pop in, you go, oh, okay, it's a Bruce Willis cop movie. But it's not really spelled out as McLean until you know well over a minute when they introduce Lucy and that element of the story. Um. And I, you know, looking back, I'm like, I'm trying to remember if I knew it was a, a diehard movie when I started watching the trailer, or was this kind of set up in an interesting way where it's like, you know, it's a Bruce Willis action movie, but I, you know, it kind of was like when the diehard reveal happens, I was like, whoa, you know, it's yeah, interesting. Yeah,
0: I mean, this is a movie that the trailer, I mean, it 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 accomplished what it needed to do. I was, abs- of course, going to see this movie. Uh, and I was going to see it in the theater, and you know, seeing it in uh, taking place in DC, putting John McClane in a different location, um, I, I knew—I'm sure I knew going in that it was going to be just a show of a flagrant disregard for technology, and and that it did. Uh, but uh, the it was a. Uh, bang up, shoot him up, action film that was that was starring one of my very favorite characters. Of course, I was going to see this movie. So I, I think it actually did what it needed to do. Uh, and uh, you know, by this point, I, I feel like I'm used to you telling me not to take it so seriously.
1: <laughs> here, here. Although I will say, this is the second movie that he's in DC. Don't forget.
0: Okay, <laughs> you forgot. I forgot. <laughs> <laughs>
1: it's an airport it doesn't feel like washington dc it it certainly
0: (laughs) doesn't feel like washington dc and it i mean it never because it was shot in so many other places and we spent so much time talking about the fact that it was shot in so many other places and the book didn't place take place there i you can you can forgive me i think i can i can please forgive me andy please
1: i'm doing america a favor
0: Is the country willing to pay for it? FAA just
1: issued a critical alert. The entire network went down.
0: Transportation systems crashing and they just hit the entire financial sector.
1: You have no idea who you're dealing with. I'll take it from here. (laughs)
0: is the next reel everybody i'm pete wright and that there is andy nelson hey 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 and we spoil movies tonight on the show mclean is back and he's bringing the Aegis techno culture war with him in 2007's live free or die hard before we get into that you should learn more about us at thenextreel.com subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast app or follow us on twitter and facebook at the next reel
1: and if you enjoy this show and are interested in supporting our ongoing work investigating great film please consider a regular donation through our Patreon page. You'll get to join our back-channel conversations on Slack and gain access to our members-only weekend show, The Saturday Matinee, where we talk about the latest movie gossip, chat about new trailers, and share our movie lists. This week, to celebrate Live Free or Die Hard, we're doing lists of our favorite movies that basically feature fire sales like this one, Government Shutdowns. Just head on over to patreon.com slash reel to learn more. Officer McLean. I need you to behave.
0: You said to me, Andy, you said last week that this was the movie you watch more than any other Die Hard movie, I think, except for the first one. Is that accurate? That is accurate. Why is that? Because
1: I love this movie. I love it, love it, love it. It is so much fun from beginning to end. Yes, there is some some crazy over-the-top nonsense, but it's kind of become par for the course with the Die Hard franchise um, I think that the the action sequences are fantastic. I think the character John McClane is uh, written better than almost any of the other films, uh, maybe except for the first one. I, he's got some really great moments. The relationship with his daughter is really nicely done in this film. The buddy element uh, that we get with this one is great. Um, the story that's happening, the way it unfolds, it's just exciting and interesting. And it just, it worked really well in context of having this kind of older cop, um, being the one who has to take down this, uh, this tech war. I, I just, I love it. I think it's just a fantastic, uh, watch and a, a really exciting entry to the franchise.
0: Well, I agree. I, uh, this is not a movie that I have watched pretty much, I, I don't know, I, maybe I watched it once or twice when it first came out for, on home release, but uh I, I don't know why. But the first few times I saw it, I, it just, y- you know, it didn't become one of those movies that I, I considered... Uh, in such high regard but watching it closely this time around uh, man I regret that because this uh, I had a great time with this movie I should totally watch it more often there is no shortage of awesome action stunt set pieces Uh, and the uh, you know I think to your point about how well John McClane is written I would just tack on that I think Bruce Willis has gotten uh, you know progressively better at portraying him and I I think I said early on in the series that uh, my memory of John McClane is that I like him much more older and this is that John McClane this is the John McClane that I feel like he's aged into the part and uh, I you know as much as I know that we've had a lot of John McClane uh, this is Bruce Willis is at sort of peak John McClane now I want to see you know I I would actually love to see another Die Hard movie with this John McClane um, uh, in it i I had a a wonderful time um, and you know it, it's 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 sort of highlighted in in the sequence in the film where they get their their ride to West Virginia and, and McLean talks about how you know there's there's no one else uh, there's no one else to do this stuff that I do and uh, you know he's saying it not heroically. Uh, but but really regretfully, remorsefully that, and and that's sort of the true heart, not just of the film, but of this whole franchise. It's his existential purpose, uh, John McClane, is that he's always in the wrong place at the right time, doing the right thing, and and that's uh, uh, I think what makes McClane McClane and just so so cool. Well, and it's it's a beautiful
1: moment too because it's really it is that regret because he's talking about. You know the the broken relationships he has with his wife and his family and his kids, and it's just it's really touching. You know, it's like this is what he kind of chose to do, and it just unfortunately um, led to uh, the distance that he has with his daughter that we see in this one. And it's it's played so nicely, and and there's a great line that uh, that Justin Long's character Matt uh, says to him. He's like, "Well, that's what makes you that guy." and it's and then we get a great uh, kind of a callback to that uh, toward the end of the film um but it's just it it's it's just such a nice moment to have with McLean because this is a guy who's who's been doing the right thing for a long time and really is i mean it's it's wearing him down i mean he looks really tired throughout the film i mean granted they're awake yeah, right. like 36 hours trying to stop these things but still it's like he just has that sense about him And the fact that he keeps on going, because as he says, you know, there's no one else who can do it. I mean, that says so much about McLean. And really, I think why this, this franchise uh, has lasted as long as it has, because it's a character that you could almost say we, you know, we, we all hope we would be if we got into a situation like this. I mean, obviously, we're Uh, you know, not, uh, you know, all New York City cops who get into these wrong situations. But I mean, he knows a lot of uh, interesting stuff. But I I think that It's the way that he approaches the situations that makes him such a a powerful character that works really well.
0: I hear Die Hard 6, he's retired from the force and is a a podcaster and tech pundit. (laughs) and uh, Still in the wrong place at the wrong time. It's amazing. You know, the other thing we can't do with this film that we were able to do so deliciously in the first three, we can't lampoon the authorities. There are no dumb cops in this movie. And I adore that. I, re- I mean, it's fantastic. And I don't know why that
1: is. I do think there's something to the fact that this is the first entry into the franchise that is post 9-11. Oh. And I think uh, September 11th, just the way that that people felt like, you know, we were all coming together, we're all part of the same team. Um, I think that kind of led to some of the, um, just kind of the, the focus on that. You know, you didn't want to make, you know, the good guys seem to be like idiots.
0: That's a really good point. Yeah. Yeah, you're a smart Thanks. guy. <laughs> you designed the system after all.
1: Before we leave the conversation about cops, though, I do have to ask, though, and this may be where they do reflect a little bit of the idiocy, is the fact that where are the cops? Like, why don't they show up? Matt's Matt's apartment is getting... I mean, attacked to the point where the building seems like it's going to come down. I mean, the <laughs> amount of shooting and explosions going on there. Uh, yet no one else in the building is, or nearby is calling the cops. I, I felt like by the time they're in the alley having a fight that some cops would have been showing
0: up by then. I, You know, I agree with you. But I, I would actually, I, I mean, I can forgive that for the sake of the action beat. Oh, and, sure, yeah. You know, and, and it, their absence is a far lesser sin than their presence foolishly. Would hear, you here. I agree. with Would that. you please a write that sentiment. down for a <laughs> cookie of some sort? That should go in a cookie. <laughs> oh, that's but but allowance. the same thing happens. Like at the beginning, we have the uh, um, you know the the director of the agency says, you know there are, there are a thousand guys who could pull this thing off. Right? We need to to go out to local law enforcement and have the local law enforcement go round up these thousand guys wherever they may be across the country. And bring them to us, and John McClane is the only guy that manages to do it, right? Across, on the East Coast, in and around D.C., the only guy who's able to do it. I found that also uh, difficult to swallow.
1: Well, I, I guess that's not something that's ever bothered me. I mean, it—they it, make it seem pretty clear that they pretty much all end up dead.
0: But there were so, a thousand, not the seven, yeah. a thousand. Yeah. Right, like the call yeah. went out to all thousand. Yeah. I'm just saying. But it did. All right. I, okay. I mean, so I'm looking too hard at that. I get it. I hear it's, you. I, the I other cops you. are just, they're not
1: McClain. They're they not McLean. They don't have the skills. Like once, once their Lojack stops working, <laughs> it's
0: just like, <laughs> ah, they, they, oh. guys, forget it. I'm phoning it in. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> All right. Let's talk about Justin Long, the, uh, the, the, the latest buddy. I love him. <laughs> I think he is so funny. And it's it's
1: great having uh, kind of a young voice uh paired up with him and somebody who also is just kind of just such a, the opposite, kind of the, the yang to Bruce's yin. He's such a wimp. He's just, you know, just I mean, the, the hacker element certainly is there, but just everything about him is just so not the fighter. And so it made it really funny to have him as the one that uh, McLean was paired with throughout.
0: Yeah, I think so too. And he was such a, a dramatic contrast from Zeus in the movie prior that, uh, you know, yes, he was a buddy. And in every other aspect, he was different, right? He looked different. He was a different age. He sounded different. Uh, he And he had a different purpose. And where I think, you know, McLean needed Zeus in the last movie. He needed him, um, you know, because he needed... He needed a partner. He needed a foil. He needed somebody to help him learn something about himself. Right? I mean, there was there was definitely an awakening that happened, and for Zeus as well. It was, but it was, he, I, I think, arguably a a less practical uh, sense of character need than in this movie. In this movie, McLean needs Matt because there is so much a world of stuff that he is ill equipped to to even approach. Like he he can't even speak with authority on some of these subjects and so he needs Matt and he needs to they you know have a, a similar awakening to the wisdom of youth that he feels he carries with the wisdom of age and and I think that uh, I think that ended up playing really really well and and not silly and it, it could have been ridiculous and it, it just it just wasn't.
1: No, it works really nicely, uh, and uh, you know, Justin Long, I think, pulls off kind of the the hacking nature of the story, um, regardless of what you think about the actual hacking itself. Oh, and like I think about it <laughs> how realistic it might be. Um, uh, but I think that uh, I think they pull off the realities of both of their worlds well enough, and kind of the the uh, the contrast that they have as they're as they're kind of butting heads and working together to make everything happen. Um speaking of Justin Long, I, I and his tech savvy, I did want to just bring up one point that I forgot to mention with McLean that I love so much. I love that um he's this old guy who is really kind of this low tech guy and and he may be low tech like the whole low jack thing the conversation that he has at the beginning but what's great about McLean is he may be low tech but he's actually really paying attention to stuff that's going on uh, the the tech stuff and everything like he he keeps bringing things up that that people point out like for example the low jack again he brings that up later in the story so that, to tell them hey we use the low jack and track this vehicle he's he's a very sharp guy even if he's not as uh as tech-savvy as Matt is.
0: No, that's a really good point, because they could have made him the curmudgeon who disrespects and dismisses the technology, and and you're right, you, he doesn't do that, uh, yeah. which I think is great. And, and you know, the the hacking stuff. So, yeah, it's silly, and the things that Matt can accomplish with a roll-up USB keyboard are amazing, but um, uh, I think, in large part, they gloss over it. They move so quickly through the beats that involve actual hacking. Like, they don't center on it so long that you that, that you get lost in it, right? It's not a movie that's about the hacking. Uh, it's a means to an end. and the end is get us to the next action beat. Uh, you know, for example, when the, the thug hacker, Uh, Matt's evil foil is in the van and he's trying to call up the go codes for the the F-35. You know, he just ends up typing and then suddenly we have this van that's driving down the road connected to the jet and it's he probably typed a few words (laughs) in his little keyboard (laughs) and that was magic. But I don't think... The movie moves so fast. The pace is so quick that you move through those that it, it makes those elements, I think, in my opinion more forgivable uh and and i think that's i I think it actually works i'm surprised that i'm saying that myself because i'm usually pretty attuned to that stuff so this ain't no swordfish
1: well (laughs) i was gonna say you know comparing it to the elizabeth salander world that we were just in yeah um in our in our previous series i think it was interesting to see kind of how elizabeth dealt with the hacking uh, with uh and i'm forgetting her uh the guy that she worked with um uh, <laughs> what was who his name?
0: Rodent. No, uh, War, nah, see. Uh, all I can think of is
1: Warlock. No, is that Warlock, was in this movie. Right. Yeah. Yeah, right. Um, yeah, you're right. Whatever his name is. But yeah, but the way that the hacking was dealt with there, I mean, you saw a little bit more. It just seemed a little bit more realistic. But I mean, this is a diehard film. And yeah. it's it, they're going to take, I mean, you know, the FBI office looks completely exaggerated for what an FBI office lo- would look like. So same with the power plant, same with the uh, the cooling room. Yeah, uh, everything is just exaggerated and bigger and designed that way because of the type of film that it is. And I think the hacking falls right into that. Yeah, and for that, I it, I, I I completely have no issues with it.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, the, the the there were some elements that that caught me. Speaking of Justin Long, first of all, the the explosion in the the gas plant. After it, there is a sequence where it's practically a different actor. The ADR was so bad. Did you notice this? When he didn't. I'm not... Oh, my God. I, I you got, it's say. so bad. It's so bad. I just want to call that out. Uh, and then there there was a fantastic... Uh, I don't know. To me, I was laughing out loud. So Justin Long falls backward in, the, in this plant off of his chair, and he falls over a ledge, I I have a game on my phone where y- it's just a dummy falling in a pit that never ends and your job is to tilt the phone to ab- avoid obstacles <laughs> And for uh-huh. me, that was this sequence. He falls off a ledge. He's like, oh, my God, there's a ledge. And he lands on a pipe. Oh, my God, there's a pipe. And then he falls again. And now he lands on a floor. And oh, my God, there's now there's a trap door in the and he falls through the trap door. Like he just keeps falling through these <laughs> obstacles. It just never ends. And by the end, I'm on the floor. I It was it was just really funny. And I feel like I'm kind of alone. But next time you think about it, it this would have been the game for live free or die hard they could have totally monetized the justin long falling experience and made this the live live free or fall hard justin long falling game i'm telling you i almost
1: want to go back and just rewatch that again just to catch all <laughs> it's of that, really funny it sounds extra funny uh, you're describing it
0: <laughs> i don't know now that i've said it out loud it's probably not funny at all but in my head it's amazing <laughs> amazing Fantastic. Uh, he has some great moments, and I think that's a result of his just uh, incredible skill as an improvisational actor.
1: Yeah, and just the lines that he throws out. I mean, it's just it's some of the stuff. I, I know that they did a lot of improv on set and just trying to come up with the little lines here and there. Um, but just things like you know when he's it's like oh how, how are you, how are you I can't remember what Bruce says. It's after the big things like are you, you okay? And he's just like, well, uh, you know, I, I scrape scraped my knee and my asthma is acting up, but. Yeah, I guess okay. <laughs> like...
0: I, I have really low blood sugar, can we just pull over to Arby's right there? I'll just get some ketchup packets. Yeah, we'll get some ketchup <laughs> it's so ketchup good. Packets. You know, he's I, I I don't know. I I really like Michael Sarah, but this is the same sort of um uh, kind of uh type uh, of character that these guys can play so well. And I really I I prefer Justin Long. I I think he's he's a gentle uh, sort of less acerbic performer and uh, I, I feel for him uh, in this in this role. I think he's great.
1: Well, and also I think that um, and this is just kind of, oh, I, I don't even think it's necessarily typecasting, but just the fact that he played the Mac in the Apple versus Mac, uh, I mean uh, PC versus Mac uh, commercials um, lends something to him about kind of that that hipper computer guy that I don't see with Michael Sarah, And so yeah. to that end I think that you know that characterization that he lived so long in the commercials really kind of benefits what he's doing here. I don't know. You think that um is it played a hand in him getting the role? I don't know. I'm I'm very curious if that's something that that might have led to it. I I don't know for sure, but it certainly is an interesting element. I I, I know that uh, that uh, Len Wiseman just really liked Justin Long and thought he would be an interesting actor for it. But I don't know if that's if that's the specific reason. Because
0: trust me, Bruce Willis is a PC. <laughs> <laughs> yes, if he if he is ever is got no that question. far, yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we have one of those moments, right? We have one of those moments where they're standing outside and they don't know where they're, how they're going to get where they're going to go, and thank God they turn around and there's a helicopter. Ergo, someone better know how to fly a helicopter. And that someone uh, with whom we have great experience, uh, believing that he does not like to fly and he, uh, he cannot fly, ends up being John McClane. He actually has taken some lessons, and now he flies helicopters poorly.
1: You know, they write it into the script where I don't end up having a problem with it. I, I find myself forgiving them of that.
0: Well, of course you do, because you're all soft on this stuff. I'm just saying it. I was jarred by it. I, I think, on reflection, I... I think I buy it. But I will tell you, it stopped me. Um, And and having not watched this movie in a long time, it stopped me Mm -hmm. thinking, oh, my goodness, that is a violation of the rules that they set up. And they glossed over the, well, I took some lessons, face your fears and all that stuff. I'm not sure they had earned enough of McLean being the open-minded progressive who does things like facing his fears intentionally, right? He's a guy who reacts. He doesn't go out and, you know, I I just don't see him as a guy who goes out and, you know, starts taking yoga, starts taking helicopter lessons, starts doing things to, to, you know, improve his situation beyond just responding to them the only way he knows how he's a blunt instrument and so it, it stopped me in watching the movie it took me out of the movie because it felt like a violation of the rules that they'd set up in the in the narrative
1: i i i can agree with you um uh, but to a certain extent i can because in the second one you know he's in the He's in the in the helicopter as they're flying out, and he's getting ready to jump on the jet wing. And they're and he's like, "I hate to fly." And she's like, "Well, what are you doing here? I hate to lose more or whatever." He says, "Right." And I I feel like I can see McLean one being the kind of guy who's just like, you know, he hates to lose, and he's been in enough situations where flying has been involved, where he's just like, you know, I'm going to have to deal with that. Uh, because i i don't I don't want to have to lose because of that again, and so I can see it happening and and, and two, I also think that it, and I know it's not necessarily that strong, but I do like that they end it with you know it's like you know face your fears and all that and justin long's like did it work not really and i just i like the fact that they end it that way because it's like it you know it hasn't really worked, he still hates flying yet here he is doing it. So.
0: Yeah. I I mean I I see your perspective. I really do. I'm I just feel like it's a it's one of those fine line elements and um uh and uh, you know, I get it. It but it took me it took me a second. Um we have Silent Bob stunt casting. You know, is it I I was thinking about this quite a bit cuz I'm like, you know, the thing
1: about uh, about him popping in um this is 2 years after Wedding Crashers. And it felt very much like Will Farrell in that film as pretty much the same guy, um, not quite as tech, but you know, still living in his mom's basement sort of guy,
0: right? Right?
1: And so I felt like they kind of wrote the character a little bit that way. Um, I uh, you know I, I, it's never really bothered me. I think it's kind of fun. I kind of like Kevin Smith as the guy who, would be doing that because it just seems like something that if Kevin Smith never quite got his first feature film off the ground, it seems like what would actually be happening with him uh, because he just seems <laughs> like that sort of guy. I don't know. Uh, it probably speaks terribly of Kevin Smith, but it's just, or at least my impression of him, but it just, it seems like he's just kind of that slubby sort of guy who's really into all the action figures and all that sort of stuff. And um, maybe not as tech savvy as, as Warlock is, but Uh, You know, I don't know. I kind of like the casting of him as it. As far as the Silent Bob aspect of it, you know, that's never really played to me because he's really only silent bob in his own movies
0: no i know i know i said it's you know being being a smart ass i actually agree with you he felt a little old to me in the you know to be believably a uh, you know friend of justin long's from his youth they felt a little off age to me but uh, otherwise i really enjoyed him and uh, frankly it's you know that's the legit sort of hacker stereotype right like He's he's the one who's like super brilliant in his basement, totally wired in and, and doing things he shouldn't. And you can kind of see how he would escalate into a point of having, you know, having a CB and having, you know, being able to open a channel to police and, you know, emergency services. Like, I, I, weirdly, I think Kevin Smith is one of the more believable technological components of this film.
1: Yeah, right. Yeah, he definitely seems like... Uh, he's, he's not only the tech guy who lives in his mom's basement, but he's also a prepper. You know? Yeah. <laughs> he's, got,
0: <laughs> he's got everything totally ready. Right. <laughs> uh, Simon Dugan is the, uh, cinematographer on this. Did you, I mean, th- this introduced some non-trivial jiggly monkey into the camera work.
1: There was, uh, the camera work was a lot, uh, a lot wilder in this one, as was the editing. Um, there are times that I was watching this. Um, I mean, specifically this time where I was taking notes saying, you know, there's a lot more shots and a lot more cuts in this than we've had so far. Maybe it's maybe it's on par with Rennie Harlan. I, I don't know if I have a comparison. I couldn't find it on um, Cinemetrics. They didn't have this one listed from what I could find. But the. um uh, But I did note that there were some times where there were shots that were in that were edited in. Uh, and cuts. And I was like, gosh, that really didn't work for me. Why did they cut it that way? Why did they shoot it that way? Um, on the whole, I don't really have too many problems. I know some people have real issues with Len Wiseman in the way that he kind of structures his shots and builds his films. Um, I on On the whole, I really don't have any issues with him. I enjoy... What he does in the underworld films, I, I enjoy what he does here. But there are times I, I don't find him as clean an action director as we've seen from like John McTiernan, for example. Well,
0: and I think the problem is is that sometimes that camera work, in combination with with you know just not having the material to cut together some of these more vibrant sequences, uh, leaves them feeling just straight up sloppy. You know, I thought the the fight scene uh, in Cooling Tower Seven. Uh, which, you know, is between obviously McLean and Rand, the fantastic Cyril Raffaele uh, was a mess, right? It was the result of this crazy jiggly monkey stuff. And I, I can't keep up with what these guys are doing. And and I think it's to a discredit of some fantastic on-screen action and stunt performances. And and I really, I mean, I, I think this film suffers as a result of some of these issues that, that uh, uh, frustrates me. On the other hand, Straight up single best uh, one shot in this entire film is, again, Raffaele jumping off a building uh, in a single tracking shot, falling down, grabbing onto the stupid, you know, fire escapes and fences and trash from like the sixth floor or sixth story off the roof of this building and landing on the ground. That was straight up amazing amazing and uh you know it was shot very very well and i i felt like i was they they appreciated that stunt you could tell they worshiped that stunt uh to a degree that i think they they didn't worship uh as much of the wonderful work going on in that fight scene
1: that's interesting because that fight scene is not one i've ever had issues with i actually find it uh cut together quite well so i, I wonder if it's just a you know uh maybe i've watched it so many times it just doesn't phase me anymore but um um i have found other areas uh, a little more problematic less so in the fights actually though i find that interesting that the 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 cutting style and the editing in that fight is what what uh, was tough for you an area where i actually found some editing uh difficulty was uh, and it's not even related to action it's just it's really just the way that the scenes cut together it's how do they pinpoint the car that um, that is carrying McLean and Matt early in the film when, when they're riding with uh, Agent Johnson in the uh, early in the in the film, mm-hmm. and that's one of those those situations where if you listen really hard, and I my, my wife and I went back and listened several times to the audio because it, it it's just edited so roughly and so quickly that that it goes from them scanning the radios to all of a sudden oh we've got a hit you know here he is we found him um but there's it's like there's there's the actual quote evidence of them finding that is so buried in the audio that i mean we really had to listen several times before we could even pinpoint oh no they do actually say it it's just it's so deep in there so uh, you know there are there are areas where i think some of the ways that they were working on making this, uh, it, it does end up getting rushed, whether it's, you know, the fight scene for you or some of the other scenes for me.
0: we got It's, it's another holiday film. It's not a Christmas film.
1: The, our, this is our first uh, 4th of July. The third one kind of uh, skipped holidays altogether and just went for summer. And uh, this one is, they pinpointed the 4th of July weekend. And I guess that's because of the patriotic nature of the mashups? Maybe,
0: Maybe. I, I guess. I, you know, I didn't feel like... I, I, this, this film for me is not inseparable from the holiday in a way that, you know, the first diehard really is for me now.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's, it, you know, it's because it's taking place on the 4th of July weekend. It's not like, you know, people are going to start putting this on every 4th of July to watch it. I don't think people really do that anyway. Maybe Independence Day. I, I don't know what people do movie wise, but, uh, uh it's but it is interesting that they did choose very specifically to make it happen over a holiday weekend
0: yeah i uh so I watched this movie thanks to the fantastic uh movies anywhere service I was in uh I was not at my home system when I watched this, so I watched it on the unlocked version on YouTube, which is so cool that that's even a possibility. Uh, And so I did not watch the unrated version of this movie. When I went back just tonight to start watching some of the -the behind-the-scenes stuff in my iTunes extras, I realized that the iTunes extra includes an unrated version of this movie. So we have here the theatrical, which is a PG-13 diehard movie, which is a first. The others are R-rated diehard movies. And then this new animal, the unrated movie, uh, which I assume was targeting an R rating. I don't know.
1: It's the unrated version is just the R rated version. Okay. That, you know what is the yeah, difference? That's, that's all it is. And what is your what is your take? Well, it's interesting because uh, you know they went into this the making of this film with all intentions of just making an R rated Die Hard movie. It wasn't until like at least three weeks of production had gone by where the studio told them they wanted it to be PG thirteen, and that's because uh, you know by reducing the rating. Um, they can get more of an audience in. I mean, it's the same issue that uh, the, the superhero franchises have always been been uh, you know frustrated with or not frustrated with. Some of them, as they try to, you know keep characters like Wolverine in the PG13 world. and it's you know, they finally were able to break out of it with Deadpool and, and Logan. But it's been a real challenge because they know they can get more people, in the seats if they keep it at least a PG-13. That's what 20th Century Fox wanted to do with this. I mean, I mentioned it last week. Maybe uh, they got more, or, or maybe Fox was funding the entire film this time, and so they wanted to guarantee that they were going to get more money and not some some uh, third party who is going to come in and give them some funding and take all the foreign, uh, foreign money or something like that. Uh, I don't know, but they were really pushing to get more money out of this one. And what, what happened is, you know, they, uh, you know, Len Wiseman and his writers and Bruce Willis and everyone had to start, you know, shooting scenes that, okay, we've got to do this. Okay, let's do it this way. Now let's do it the, the non swearing way. And they started having to play that game throughout. And it's interesting listening to them uh, as they talk about the changes when they had to start making the movie go down from the R to the PG-13. I mean, you know, you know, squibs, they could do bloody squibs when it was uh, R. For the PG-13, it had to be kind of, you know, not the bloody squibs. Um, the, the sound effects had to be um, not as loud. Gunshots couldn't be as loud. Um you know there was just so many different elements there were there were things like when Bruce Willis uh when he's in Matt's apartment he reaches through the wall and like pulls the guy's head back and breaks his neck they couldn't show that shot of him breaking the guy's neck in the uh, PG-13 version because it was just too much. So it's really an interesting set of things that they had to do to bring it down to PG-13. Now I still think they made a very successful Die Hard film that worked in the PG-13 world. Um but uh and I loved it in the theater when I saw it. I didn't feel like it was necessarily PG thirteen. I thought it, you know, I thought it felt like Die Hard. I guess I wasn't paying attention to rating, but having uh, only watched the unrated version uh, since I bought it, I, you know, I just it's I just feel like it's really kind of a core part of Die Hard. It was just it felt like a strange, you know, sidestep for Fox to make that choice.
0: Yeah, I think so too. It was very strange, uh, but you're right. There was nothing in here, and like I, I mean, it, it didn't shock me that the lack of you know, violence and swearing in this movie. I actually still had a a great time. I still had a great time in the innocent movie. (laughs) Here's the thing that I don't think uh, we understand because of our uh, lack of experience in fluid dynamics and, and engineering. And that is, Andy, what's up with the gas? used as a, like a weapon <laughs> in our gas systems our national gas pipelines
1: I, I love that i it's it's so absurd it's like send all the gas their way right. and somehow it's on fire it's already like already like on how, fire by the time it gets uh, there how
0: does that happen what happened so- <laughs> you guys terrify me like that's maybe the most frightening thing of the entire thing it's like a whole new anxiety to carry around I have natural (laughs) gas in my house. Why is it not already on fire when it gets here? (laughs) Maybe it is, Pete. And I would never know. Maybe your house has a
1: stopper and you just don't, (laughs) you're unaware. It's all burning underneath you.
0: Oh my God, it's burning. (laughs) Andy, (laughs) you're telling me I'm just, I'm about ready to just go up at any minute.
1: (laughs) Got to be prepared, man, just in case. Jesus. It is crazy. I like I've never understood like why is the gas on fire in the pipes? <laughs> I okay, I was like they're sending all the gas away. Okay, they're going to suffocate them. They're going to die of, you know, suffocation breathing the gas fumes is kind of what I assumed would happen. But no. <laughs> en fuego. You know what I, I'm going to love about this, Pete, is if our listeners uh, respond to us and say, what are you talking about? You are Didn't so you the stupid. Thing? This, this oh, will know. turn into the, you know, welcome to the party, pal, from this movie. It's like,
0: God, I can't wait. Didn't you see? There was a five-minute sequence of a guy trying to light a match. <laughs> How could you have missed that? <laughs> oh, man. Good stuff. Oh, uh, it's uh, so stuff. good. Okay. Well, we do have to say this is uh, for me it's probably the best way to take down a villain uh John McClane's uh, final uh confrontation with Thomas Gabriel. Awesome.
1: It is so great. Um I mean there's nothing that beats the the slow-mo fall of Hans Gruber in the first movie, but still this one, the way that he actually <laughs> He shoots himself through the hole that that Gabriel just shot in him. I, I like, I like. It's, it's just absurd, but it's just it fits McLean so brilliantly. I absolutely love it, and to take him down that way, I think is just fantastic. Plus, it gets the great uh, entry for our yippie Kaye line that we get in this film.
0: It does. And actually, speaking of that, how would you rank this yippie Kaye? <laughs> The Yippee Ki Yay, uh, Yippee number four with the other three. Uh, it's that's
1: that's this one's way up there for me because it's it's a climactic Yippee Ki You know, the first movie is an interesting one because it's it's not set up to be like the big line or, or like the the final climactic line. It just happens uh, at a particular point. Um I mean, you do get Hans trying to say it at the end, but it's not it's not the same. Um the second one let's see he says it uh, as he lights the fire and blows the plane up right in the third movie he says it it's like right at the very end after he uh, as a whisper uh, almost as he uh, uh, after he's blown up uh, simon and their and his helicopter um it's it's kind of a a much more passive Kaye. this one <laughs> it's I, I, a
0: passive it's, you're right it's a <laughs> passive y
1: because he's whispering, he's like yippee! It's like it's like the denouement of of the moment. It's the denouement yippee Yeah. So you've got the first one. It's kind of like just the setup yippee kaye. It's the first one. Uh, they
0: didn't even know yippee kaye was going to be the the a line. Right. It right? wasn't it's just a thing. thing. Right. Yeah.
1: Right. The second one. It's you know they're like that was a great line. Let's use it to to really blow up the bad guys in this one. And so that became the climax in the second one. And it's the climax in the fourth one too. The fourth one I think does it a lot better. Um, And the third one is just kind of a whispery kind of turd is what the third one turns into, unfortunately. So if I had to rank them, I'd say my favorite actually is probably the fourth one because of the way it's used. The first one is probably second only because it wasn't designed to be the cool line that it became. Um, I'm torn with that. I may have to say the first one's first. But anyway, then second and then fourth.
0: For me, uh, I think it is the... Uh the first one because it's the first one, then the fourth, then the second, then the third. However, uh I would say that there is a bonus. The yippikaye in the alternate ending of three is a better yippikaye than three itself. And so that I would absolutely insert after number one. Uh so four, one, three, alternate two. Two. Yeah. Three, then three, then three
1: at the very end. At the very end, and then it, we we didn't even mention, but the Yippee Kaye line in the trailer for this one was a completely different Yippee Kaye that wasn't even used in the film.
0: As a result, it is the sixth Yippee Kaye in my <laughs> ranking. The trailer Yippee Kaye. <laughs> Oh yeah, we're gonna have to remember all this. So next week will we, will we throw <laughs> it the taking notes. <laughs> try to remember which one was that again. Uh, yes, good stuff. The good ranking stuff. of Yippee Ki You know this. This should have been our list for the for the uh, Saturday matinee this week. <laughs> it best right. <laughs> Anyway, how did this movie get made, Andy?
1: Uh, so this was – it's interesting. This actually – I didn't realize, but they actually had started trying to put this together much, much earlier, like after the third one. Um, and uh, they were moving along. They had this plot based on a script that David Marconi, who had uh, great success with enemy, enemy of the State, he had written the script dot 3com and they kind of were using that plot to kind of uh, um, form this story. That plot was from this article that we'll be talking about here in a minute. Um, and, um, but unfortunately, because uh, of September 11th, uh, that shows you how long ago this was, um, they felt like, you know, this whole, this whole takedown of the country, it's really not something that, uh, that we can do right now. And so the production stalled, put it on a big delay. After the delay, uh, as as time went by, Doug Richardson came in to do some rewrites. Um, he turned it into this Die Hard 4, and then Mark Bombach took it over. Um, and it, it's always so interesting, I, I find, the, the way that the uh, Writers Guild works, because um, Doug Richardson, who did the rewrites to make it Die Hard 4, got no credit. Mark Bombach and David Marconi uh, were the two who ended up getting credit, so... Uh, anyway, it's uh, it, it it did finally get made, and here we are.
0: I uh, actually we put the link to this article "A Farewell to Arms" by John Carlin in the show notes, and I think uh, that you should go read it if you're interested in this movie. It is that it's frankly an interesting read. It originally appeared in Wired in uh, 1987, and. It is a. It's got some really interesting elements in it. Uh, it's uh, You know, it's one of those sort of terror news articles. Like you, you, you should be afraid, and you don't even know it. Uh, but there are some really interesting co- uh, comments and and uh, uh, notes that he pulls out of, for example, the Chinese Army uh, article on the nature of the uh, of the information war that is to come, and just how vulnerable uh, we are as a result because we're not thinking about this stuff, and it you know, unfolds in this Marconi script.
1: What I find so strange, though, is that this John Carlin article was credited because other than kind of like the vague concept, it's like there's no story here. It's like this could happen. Yeah. But somehow they pulled the script from just the kind of the concept that he's talking about. And that was enough to to warrant saying based on the article by that really surprised me when I read this article, because I'm like, okay, it's I mean, it's. It's a tech article talking about tech and, you know, what could happen and kind of scenarios. But in no way is there any
0: story. It makes you wonder if a uh, Marconi is friends with Carlin somehow, uh, because sure. this is a this was a credit of grace and gratitude, clearly, for the inspiration that yeah. was unwarranted. Like they I clearly could have gotten away, as you say, without that. Yeah, definitely. Let's do the deep scene dive, Andy. Let's do it. All right, I'm going to have you set it up because I think, I think this is your this is your big favorite sequence, right, in terms of the big action elements. You know, I love them
1: all, but this one's <laughs> awful, awfully
0: fun. Um, it's it's
1: just, I mean, it's it's over the top and and brilliant. I mean, this is the moment. Uh, so so we have McLean, who is, uh, you know, he's trying to catch the bad guys who now have both his daughter and Matt as hostages they hop in a van and a semi and roll out of this uh secret you know government bunker that they're in uh mclean sees them he jumps on the truck takes over the truck he's chasing them in the semi and um and there's an an f-35 flies up that had been called and we start our scene right after gabriel gets on the line with the pilot and says the terrorist is in a semi take him down and that's uh that's where we kick things off.
0: What do you uh, what do you love about this that makes this a uh, a definitive diehard for moment? Uh, not just a die hard
1: for moment, but a die hard moment. This is Bruce Willis as McClane getting into a situation that is, is so above uh you know what he should normally be able to handle. It's just absurd that he's in this semi, and here he is having to duke it out basically with an f thirty five that is flying around these freeways and trying to blow him up. and it's it's over the top. It's intense action. They do some amazing, like you know, real stunt work. They do some some great model work. The effects, the the action, everything is in here for a diehard moment. And yes, it is pretty absurd and over the top uh, with some of the stuff that ends up happening in here. You know, the the weirdly uh you know multi-layer corkscrew freeway that i have no idea what is going on with that thing um the the fact that it's falling so perfectly the freeway as it's collapsing that his semi can kind of keep driving up and go up this ledge and then fall down that ledge it works so nicely but it's just it's just like a beautiful action sequence to watch because the absurdity all works in context of what they're doing here and makes for
0: a riotous fun time I I think it does. Um, And (laughs) (laughs) well, I say it like that because this is, you know, for me, this is, as you say, it it represents kind of the the heart and soul of McLean because it, it asks the question, what if he's always placed in face of the hardest decision he could make? And we play that out to its ridiculous conclusion. Like at every single point, he's only given two choices. He chooses the harder one. Eventually he's going to be on this roundabout freeway getting shot at by an F-35. And I think it's ridiculous. And yet I I do. I, I have forgiven so much by this point in the movie. The movie has so much earned credit for me that by the time they go down this particular rabbit hole, I'm I'm kind of okay with it. I'm I'm amazed because from a straight up integration of visual effects and special effects it's really beautiful i mean the the just the truck driving stunts alone you know being able to put that sort of two tractor semi on its side wheels you know for straight up six seconds uh on that bridge is amazing like just very cool driving and then to do it with these digital you know uh, freeways falling uh, on top of and behind it is it, it just looks great. So um, I I think it's really worth um, you know slowing down and watching and appreciating all the work that that went into this sequence. The only thing I think it would have been better is if at some point McLean had had the opportunity to say, "Now I have an F thirty five ho ho ho," and and I think they lost that. <laughs> <laughs> he, he jumps out onto the tail of uh, of the jet, and that's when okay, come on. So good. It's, yeah. so he good. does slide all the way down that street, though. The uh, kind of the, the, Right, the freeway is <laughs> yeah. like... And that, that to me, I mean, I
1: don't know if you've ever like actually walked on a freeway or touched an actual freeway. but It's, it's hot. It's not smooth. It's And it's not smooth. It is rough, rough, rough rock and I just can only imagine you know him getting to the bottom and you know he's gonna have to be sitting in one of those like inflatable donuts forever because <laughs> he's gonna have scraped all the skin off of his backside
0: as he went down that thing. <laughs> I'd love that your <laughs> your mind goes straight to the uh the, the posterior rehabilitation <laughs> of <So> John McClain. <laughs> yeah, uh, that, that hap- that's what happens between four and five. Right? <laughs> he's gonna need a donut and some salve <laughs> oh. oh, soup, my. soup, seven a donut. <laughs> his sits bones, his poor sits bones. Yeah, McLean goes through a lot. He, <laughs> he's
1: torn up and uh, and brutalized, and he walks out. And that's you know, again, that goes to just McLean. It's the nature of this character. He's always walking out of these absurd situations. But you know, going back to just like the stunt work and everything. There are some great stunts. Now, I mean, this one may not have like all like the crazy, like uh, uh, the fantastic platform jumping sort of stunts that we had uh, earlier in the film, but there are just some great stunts throughout. And Brad Martin is the stunt coordinator, along with John Branigan, uh, the second unit stunt coordinator. I mean, they did some amazing work putting the stuff uh, together. It was really kind of a goal of of Willis and uh, Wiseman. As they put the film together to use as little CG as possible and really do as much practical effects, real stunt work as they could and only use CG. I mean, there are there are still a lot of CG shots in the film, but it's really comp- doing digital composites of some of the stuff that's happening or enhancing the shots. And I mean, you certainly get a lot of that here with, you know, kind of enhancing the the freeway elements and adding all of the different layers um, but largely, I mean, it is a semi driving on its side. It is, uh, you know, they have a, a, a full scale model of the F 35 that, he, you know, that McLean is rolling around on. Um, there's some great model shots of the smaller F 35s as it's flying around that they insert. I mean, they do a really great job of integrating these elements that just makes it feel very real.
0: I think so too. I, I think it's really, really terrific um and and you know uh Tetapolis, patrick tetapulus on the production design the way they actually match you know this was shot in baltimore and la made to look like dc and I, I to my eye i didn't notice any of the stupid stuff you know the license plates the signage like to me it 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 was legit it looked like a legit match and uh, i thought that was that was great the attention to detail looked really good
1: yeah and and likewise the work that teatopolis is doing here making all the chunks of freeway and everything yeah. i mean it, it really i mean it feels like a real environment even if i don't buy the you know triple decker corkscrew freeway <laughs> yeah just the is.
0: utility of it where are they sending people yeah, with like, that kind of a i know, freeway? It's like, <laughs> Because it's like there's nothing else around it, right? It's just, right. there's no roads in. You can, you can, or you can, there's only one road in, and it's from that sort of sub layer all the right. way to the top of what? <laughs> <It's just laughs> nothing. Oh, I, I can't
1: wait to see. You only go up from here. Good stuff. <laughs> uh,
0: Bruce does not end up in a, um, a sleeveless uh, undershirt, thanks to Denise Wingate. Well, that's right. It's yeah, still rather dirty, though. Yeah, it's, it's dirt. no, dirty. No, He's filthy.
1: Oh, he's filthy, <laughs> filthy, bloody covered in stuff. I thought it was interesting as far as the blood goes that uh, that M- Bruce actually does his own blood makeup, I guess. He uh, I-, I don't know if he's just been doing it so long in these action movies that he has a very deft hand. And so he applies his own blood makeup.
0: What is the story? on? Did you read the story, the story about him getting kicked by Maggie Q's stunt uh, double? Oh yeah,
1: yeah. She was. Um, uh, it was the kick when when she comes down as he's trying to climb out of the uh, the car in the in the elevator shaft, and uh, her stiletto heel actually uh, hit him right in the eyebrow and ripped his skin open. And he didn't think it was that bad. And and then when Len Wiseman looked at it, he's just like, "Uh, no, we should take you to the hospital uh, because he could see his bone <laughs> under there." So I was like, "Yeah." yeah. Uh, you know, maybe maybe want to get that looked at. Yeah, right. Marco Beltrami does the music. You know, uh, unfortunately, Michael Kamen, uh passed away uh, between Die Hard three and this film, um, which was a shame. I thought you know he was a great uh, a great composer, did some great scores. But I think Marco Beltrami um, does a good job of integrating little hints of uh, of some of the uh, McLean elements that we've heard so far. Um, it's not overtly like uh, a diehard score like where we're hearing a lot of the same stuff but i think there are enough hints of it that it still feels kind of a part of the world
0: i actually have a fondness for beltrami's other scores i think he's done some really good stuff so even in movies that i haven't you know necessarily liked all that much i think he's done some some really solid work for, especially his action scores uh, they're you know they're worth a listen and this is another one so um you know the guy's been around Doing this stuff for a long time, um, and you know he's got a movie coming up that we're there. There's a good chance we might be talking about it on the um, on the film board. A Quiet Place coming up April sixth, and and I'm really curious about that because so much of the movie involves you know sound design and what they do with sound and how is the score going to interact with that. So I think it's a real showcase. I'm I'm. It's great to see. Just you know he's he's an incredibly talented guy. Yeah, I I agree. Are you kidding, Steve Nelson?
1: I know, oh my God, I saw that. I couldn't stop. Are laughing. you
0: kidding? <laughs> sound by Anna Belmer, and how did I not notice this, Andy? Sound by okay, everybody sit down. Andy Nelson has been a guy that we've been following this is in terms of his sound design and mixing in Hollywood because he's a you know a thousand time Oscar nominee, and he's fantastic. Anna Belmer and Andy Nelson did the sound on this with Steve Nelson production sound mixer. Yeah, it's a little weird. It's your dad. <laughs> I know. It's like me and my dad doing the sound
1: on the movie. It's very strange. How is
0: that possible? How is that possible? <laughs> and then it's not actually you and your dad, your actual dad. Uh oh, Andy. Such a weird thing. That's Such amazing. Thing. No discredit yeah. or disrespect to Jason Jennings, who's also on the list, but is not actually related to Andy Nelson. <laughs> <laughs> As are neither are Steve Nelson or Andy Nelson in this case, uh, you know, but man, dare to dream. Yeah, right. I do think that it
1: is important. We should point out there is a great making of uh, documentary about this film called Analog Hero in a Digital Age that uh, kind of goes through the different departments and kind of the work they're doing. One of the departments that I think really is highlighted nicely is the sound department the kind of the post sound world between uh Anna Belmer and Andy Nelson listening to them talk along with the designer about the way that they do it it's like i find i finally felt like i understood the two different oscar categories basically you know it's like oh okay so that's what's going on here that's what these two different worlds are doing it it was really enlightening i thought so it's definitely worth a check out if somebody uh, gets a chance i don't know if it's uh, only available if you buy the movie or if it's on YouTube, I didn't check YouTube.
0: I didn't check YouTube either, uh, which we should do. Uh, but it is on the iTunes extras and the Blu-ray and the extra feature stuff. All that yeah, stuff, it's yes. on all that stuff. Um, Nicholas De Toth is the editing. We've talked a little bit about it. it it's 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 faster cutting, uh, and apart from some what I see as some sloppy sequences, uh, overall strong and lives up to Weissman's. Um, I think overall visual narrative. Yeah,
1: absolutely. I mean, I think it works. I think it works just fine in context of the way that the film is unfolding. I I mean, he had worked with um, Len Wiseman on Underworld Evolution, so they already had kind of a shorthand. And I just felt like, uh, again, I didn't necessarily agree with all the cuts. um, Likewise with all the shots, but at the same time, I felt like for the most part, they did a really good job of of amping things up.
0: Direction by Len Wiseman, you know, as we've talked, to sort of been banding his name about, Andy, one of the things that you said last week was some people don't appreciate Len Wiseman's style in this movie. What did you mean by that?
1: Well, not just in this movie, but I think in general. I think he is uh, a filmmaker, uh, kind of a, a younger filmmaker who's, <laughs> I say that he's my age, uh, who's who's taken, uh, you know, big action films, Underworld, Underworld, Evolution, Total Recall. And uh, and he's done, um, you know, he's he kind of goes for kind of a darker tone, um, but he also introduces a lot more cuts uh, and camera. Uh, the camera works uh, a little rougher. Um, and I think that that's just kind of the style that he's gone for. It's a very different type of action directing than what we've talked about in the last few films with Rennie Harlan or, or John McTiernan. Uh, he definitely falls more in the Rennie Harlan side of things. Um, I think John McTiernan, as we saw in the past couple of films that he did in the series, he's much more patient with his action. And yes, you know, he he found a way to balance those 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 uh, shorter cuts with longer cuts. Len doesn't seem to do that as much. It's very much a, a faster cutting style and pace and everything. I don't think it's quite Michael Bay. But it's definitely a little more um, uh, amped up than what we would get. And I think that's what bugs some people is they don't feel like Len necessarily takes the time to make sure that he's he's gotten the camera positioned in the perfect spot for a shot because he's going to hold it for six seconds. He kind of seems to wing it a little more and say, okay, I'm going to get a shot here and here and here and here, and then we'll just figure out a way to cut it all together. Um I don't necessarily have a problem with that. I think it's an interesting way that uh, that he puts it together, but it does end up meaning that there are uh, some hits and misses with some of the the shots throughout.
0: I have no problem with that. Uh, but the the only thing I would say is, and and I got into this conversation uh, with friend and and uh, the friend and listener uh, Ocean this weekend. Ocean, shout out! Uh, how you doing, man? Look, we had this conversation, and it was about. Um, James Bond, and his perspective on this was that the uh, uh, Daniel Craig James Bonds are not James Bond movies, that, in fact, they should have been, you know, call them something else. They should have been something else, great stories, but they're not James Bond. And it got me thinking, even though, you know, I disagree, uh, agree to disagree, what I do think is that there is a case to be made by some— whom I also, with whom I also disagree, that this film starts to leave behind some of the tonal, some of the narrative sort of uh, uh, choices and feelings of a diehard film. And that may be in the hands of Len Weissman. Uh, what do you think? Well,
1: but I mean, you could say the same thing about Rennie Harlan when he came in. Um, it's a franchise that this is the, the third director of four films, and next week we'll be having the fourth director of five films. Um, I, you know, they're all bringing different things to the table. And, you know, Bond is a different beast because um, it had several directors who lasted for a very long time with that franchise. Right. And left a much so firmer they, stamp on it. Right, absolutely. I, I mean, I think if you if you look at uh, something like uh, cause, what's the guy's name uh, John Glenn, who did a, a large chunk of the uh, the Bond films, you know he had a very specific style that ended up kind of fitting in with what people were expecting for Bond at the time. Um, it doesn't mean that the Daniel Craig films aren't bond films. it's you know it's it's taken it, you know it's a new helm and everything. Um, likewise here. I mean, it's just this ha- franchise just happens to have a lot more directors trying their hand at it than, uh, than Bond might have. Um, I don't know. It'll be more interesting, yeah, get, yeah. it, it,
0: more interesting, certainly if we end up with a diehard in 15 years that is actually played by a different person where John McClane gets a different actor. And I, for one, would not have a problem with that.
1: That it would be uh, well. I mean, we already have uh, Len Wiseman signed up to do Die Hard Year One. Mm-hmm. You know, so I'm 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 curious to see kind of uh, what what happens in that one and and how that ends up unfolding. But yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it's going to be an interesting uh, franchise, and you know, Fox is going to probably want to keep uh, using it as long as they can, long after Bruce Willis is kind of said, you know what, I'm I'm done. I'm a little exhausted. I'm too old. Whatever. Yeah,
0: yeah right. Timothy Oliphant uh, comes in as our big bad, Thomas Gabriel. Uh, man, great.
1: Yeah, he's he works so well as the villain. Um, I mean, you know, there's something to be said for the Gruber's. But I think that Timothy Oliphant just has a presence and just seems to work as this tech villain. I
0: I love him. Yeah, and you know I love him because the tech is a tool. You know he's not just a nerd. He's actually an incredibly savvy politician, and he knows he understands this fire sale not just as a systems administrator, uh, but but as a as somebody who knows what the impact will be on. The body politic and on civil services and on what it, and what it does to the people, you know, and I, I think that makes him just sort of a, a much sort of uh, much more multi layered kind of character. Um, and, uh, you know, I love that his, you know, his mission is like his ultimate want is uh, to be just to be heard. And he felt like he hasn't been heard, and so he's going to prove a point. He's going to prove uh, that that what he was saying all along is the truth. And you should have listened to me. And I feel like that's a um, that's that's ultimately a, a uh, it made him an interesting guy and an interesting sort of you know that that fuels kind of the undercurrent of a lot of angry nerds. Uh, and I, I think it's uh, I think it's pretty good. I mean, and I say this as as one of them, like as somebody who's worked in a large organization in the technical department and uh, having and feeling like you know, I, I raise a flag that nobody listens to.
1: The other nice thing about him is that, um, I mean, aside from the point that you just made about you know what he's really after is wanting to be heard and all this, at the same time, he really is in it for the money. Yeah, and right. I thought that was that was yeah. still a great. Uh, through line that they've had throughout
0: the franchise yeah it's a heist it's a heist uh, he's a vanderbilt yeah i guess so did you know that no that's why i said it with a question mark yeah
1: well, <laughs> he's a vanderbilt well, you say it with question mark? mark you could know but still like wow yeah apparently he's uh you know of, of the vanderbilt Vanderbilts.
0: so he doesn't actually need the money he really does just want to be heard is what you're saying
1: he he really does, All yes. Right. He's uh, he's a descendant of the prominent Vanderbilt and Oliphant families of business people, and his ancestry includes Russian, Jewish,
0: English, German, Scottish, Dutch, and Irish. Hmm. Now you know. Fascinating. Now you know. Dum, yeah. dum, dum. Maggie Q. Uh, as my Lynn, I love Maggie Q. She's a straight-up action hero. Oh, she's so good in this. Isn't yeah, she? she really is. Um, she is, I love it that she starts out kind of as the, like, she's the, the right hand woman, right? I mean, she's, she's running the con. Uh, she's the voice. She's the sexy voice running the con. And then she is a dominating physical force. And she's fantastic. And as an actress, that the the kinds of stunts that she does on her own, you know, we, I mean, we, we mentioned that she had a stunt woman who cut Bruce Willis, but doing a stunt that really Maggie Q could have and probably wanted to do very badly. Uh, I, I mean, she was doing things like, you know, actually dropping off of the uh, of the. Um, the Ford as it's hanging in the uh, in that four-story elevator shaft and catching the bumper and climbing back up like she's just an incredibly strong uh, and and capable performer she's unreal
1: she could take uh, Cliff Curtis that's for sure
0: I love (laughs) Cliff Cliff Curtis we haven't talked about him in a long time Um, Sunshine uh, was the last time we talked about him he's Kiwi and uh, I I think he's great and he he would have been the character to make an idiot uh, and they didn't. And I think that was to the movie's service.
1: Absolutely. No, he's he's great. I always love seeing Cliff Curtis pop up up and stuff. And it was nice having him as kind of a, a you know, like you said, an FBI director who I could buy into.
0: Yeah, I think so. And and you know, paired with him, we had uh Jelko Ivanek as agent Molino and he was also great as kind of the, the right hand guy, waxworks, uh you know, sort of the gatekeeper. Uh, for Cliff Curtis, and I, I like seeing him in here. Yep,
1: you know we we haven't talked about Mary Elizabeth Winstead at all as Lucy, um, John's daughter. Um, I think that she is so great. She brings such great presence to the film as Lucy Gennaro at the start, and then McLean at the end. Um, just but like the opening with her, I think is just a fantastic way to kind of introduce us to the world of McLean, and you know here he is with all these family problems love it and then to see her as such this reflection of her father that we get later in the film um i i just love it you know she's got that great line when she's on the walking she's like now there's only five of them dad or whatever it is it's it's great So
0: great (laughs) she is just wonderful and the reason we haven't mentioned her yet is because ultimately if we're not careful you and i will talk about her for an hour and a half absolutely remember her and scott pilgrim she was so good <laughs> oh my god <laughs> they just talked about
1: her on uh uh the speakeasy or not the speakeasy they just talked about her on uh, the
0: uh taylor rewind for faults that's right that's right there, there she, she was she was also oh, she's so good at everything <laughs> she's the best <laughs> uh tim russ uh, i just mentioned tim russ because uh i was a, a big fan of him in star trek
1: ah yes that's right he does pop up here briefly he was yeah
0: if anyone starts to
1: play like the the uh, the buffoon uh, uh, officials, yeah, it's him and the other guy.
0: Yeah, right. I guess they they you're right. They veer toward it, and it's like at least they got the Agent Johnson joke in there. <laughs> that was funny. I love. That. Uh, and and you know Cyril Raffaele. We already mentioned him as Rand. Uh, he's what's the deal with him as a representative of all these thugs? Why are they French? That's the
1: weirdest thing that I've never really
0: understood because,
1: uh, you know, we don't have a, a French contingent leading it. I mean, Thomas Gabriel, um, uh, played by Timothy Olyphant, certainly isn't French. Maggie Q is not French. Uh, you know, there's plenty of non-French people in their van um, that they're working with. But all of the thugs that are going around are French. And I I don't get it.
0: Yeah. That uh, doesn't make any sense. It's me. just a weird little but thing. But they're so, yeah. they're really good. I mean, they're good. Some of these, when the guy, he's he gets hit by the car on the chain link fence, and then they spring him, they like do the mouse trip, trap move, and they spring him 30 feet in the air into the, like on the dumpster. That's an amazing, just straight up physical stunt. That is a, somebody, these guys got beaten. That is crazy. Uh uh, just fantastic
1: yeah they do some great work it's uh and the it's kind of that introduction i don't know if it's the introduction i really can't remember when that sort of like leaping around from from you know platform to platform really got started but it certainly was in the peak of all of that
0: well it was actually it was i think still pretty new and that's why it was so novel i i think the the real keystone uh, sort of sequence was the opening to Casino Royale Casino, yeah, which was a year before right.
1: yeah, that might have been kind of where it all kicked
0: off yeah. Um, yeah and and you know I the guy i don't I don't remember the guy's name who did it in Casino Royale it wasn't it wasn't him, but I know it was it was this guy, Raffaelli, and the other guy in Casino Royale that are often co-credited as sort of the founders of this in France and um, and, and so uh, you know. I think he's, you know, they were right on the early edge of this just yeah. fantastic stunts.
1: Well, that's how they cast this guy, Azran, because they saw, like, a YouTube video of him jumping around, and they're like, this is crazy, let's get him and make him a, a bad guy in the movie.
0: So this is, of course, the, the sport is parkour, and it, you know, it's obviously, it's it's all over the place um, in entertainment at this period. It had been, um, yeah, Luc Besson actually is the first director to hire parkour practitioners as stunt performers, and he did it in Taxi 2 uh, in 1998. Uh, and um, so, you know, it's been around longer. I don't think it became super popular until um, uh, until Casino Royale, as we said, but in 2004, um, uh, Besson wrote District 13. Uh, which is another that had a bunch of parkour chase sequences starring David Bell and Cyril Raffaelli. Uh, and so, uh, you know, in, it was in that mid-2000s that we had the District 13s and District 13 Ultimatum, which was two years after this movie uh, that um, uh, was uh, big in, um, with parkour. Sebastian Foucan was the uh, parkour artist in Casino Royale. He also did uh, Born Ultimatum. Oh, things. interesting. So, yeah, so it's oh. it's really interesting. And then uh yeah, so they were they're talking about uh you know, parkour and Live Free or Die Hard uh, with Raffaelli and then Prince of Persia Sands of Time choreographed by Dave Bell. And it was all right around this period from 2004 to 2012, 11 12 run in 2013. Um it's all that that's is really the height of parkour.
1: I don't know the history of it, but it really feels like uh, it had to have come from some of the crazy stuff that Jackie Chan was doing back like in the seventies and some of his movies. Yeah.
0: yeah, Or even into the
1: eighties and nineties, like when he's jumping through ladders and, you know, just like the way he does crazy stuff. It seems like it evolved into this.
0: Although no reference to Jackie Chan on the Wikipedia page. So no credit from these guys uh, in, in terms of the writers on this page but i think you're exactly right i mean i think there's there's no doubt that there there is a connection to um you know his amazing stunt work um and fight choreography but yeah these are the guys who took it to the uh the street running
1: right right so moving on you know what's uh, another interesting tidbit about this movie pete this movie when this came out on dvd this was actually the first movie to actually include a digital copy of the film from this point on uh you know it's grown into what it is now with all these digital copies all over the place uh you know that i mean now you don't even need to buy the movie anymore you just get the digital copy so
0: oh what sheer delight drm on her computer video thank you thank you die (laughs) hard how'd it do in award season
1: this was a, you know, it's one of those ones where uh, it, it got noticed for kind of the action and stuff that it was doing. Uh, three wins, 16 other nominations. At the Saturn Awards, um, it was nominated for Best Action Adventure Thriller Film. It lost to 300. And Justin Long was actually nominated for Best Supporting Actor, but he lost to Javier Bardem for No Country for Old Men. At the Golden Schmoes, I thought it was funny that it was nominated for the biggest surprise of the year. But it did lose to Super Bad, which I I guess I didn't realize was something that was you know, people were surprised by. Um, the trailer, the Golden Trailer Awards, uh, was nominated for Best Action, but it lost to The Dark Knight. And what I think is an important one to point out at the World Stunt Awards, um, it did win Best Stunt Coordinator um, and or Second Unit Director. It was also nominated for Best Fight uh, with Ming Q and Dane Farwell, but they lost to 300 for the Spartans' fight. Uh, with the Persians, with the swords and spears, in a bloody battle, no wires were used; all self-thrown ground pounders. I love the little descriptions on the World Stunt Awards. God, right nominations? That's awesome. <laughs> um, best best overall stunt by a stunt woman, Ming uh lost to Zoe Bell and Tracy Keen Dashna for Grindhouse. Best specialty stunt, Ralph Coke. Uh, he lost to Robert Jones and Shay Adams in Ghost Rider for the scene where the motorcycle rider takes off to catch a van and has uh, two head-on near misses with semi-trucks. Uh, and then Best High high Work, Dane Farwell was nominated but lost to the Bourne Ultimatum which you just mentioned for that fantastic rooftop foot chase. And the Hardest Hit, uh, Adam Hart was nominated for that lost to Lars Grant in Hot Rod, of all things. Oh. So there you go. How about the yeah. budget? Uh, How did it do at the box office? Well, for Len Wiseman's spin with the franchise, he got the biggest budget thus far: 110 million, or 127.6 million in today's dollars, probably because of that PG-13 rating. The movie opened June 27, 2007, opposite Pixar's Fantastic Ratatouille, which took the number one slot, leaving McLean in second place. The movie still did well for itself, even if it never got into the number one spot. It ended up earning 134.5 million domestically and 249 million internationally. For a total of 444.9 million in today's dollars, that gave the movie an adjusted profit per finished minute of 2.4 million. Twelve years later, McLean still proves he can make a buck.
0: Well, I, you know, we're running long, but I feel like this movie is. Uh, it, it's, I'm, I'm really excited to have gone back to this movie, and it certainly has raised in it my esteem for it. Uh, after watching it this round, I I haven't given enough credit. It is peak McClane. It is peak Bruce Willis as McClane. Some great action, some some really fun stunts, and incredible stunt and and effects work. I I think it's great.
1: Yeah, it's it's uh, way up there for me. I've always loved it, and uh, thrilled to have gotten a chance
0: to watch it again. I think we should head over, Andy. It's time for us to rank it. Let's do it. Head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel. You'll see all of our movies. And if you go into the show notes here and tap the flick chart button, you'll go straight to this one where you can add it to your list. And you should totally do that. And then we can compare notes in class tomorrow.
1: All right. First up, we have live free or die hard or Star Trek Beyond. Hmm. Die hard for me. Yeah, I think die hard. Live free or die hard or Shaun of the Dead. Shaun of the Dead. That's a little tougher for me. Yeah, Shaun of the Dead. Live free or die hard or Beverly Hills Cop definitely die hard definitely die hard live free or die hard or the wizard of oz live free or die hard man it's such a
0: easy uh, choice uh, <laughs> is what you're going <laughs> to no, say it's like
1: the wizard of oz is like such a classic it's it's you know one of those things that i would put on in the right situations and everything i really love that film but but die hard yeah i mean it is a die hard film i'm going to go with die hard live free or die hard or ju- judo little Zhang Yimou. I'm going to say Die Hard. Live
0: Free or Die Hard.
1: Live Free or Die Hard or Scarlet Street. Die Hard for me. Die Hard? Live Free or Die Hard, a.k.a. We didn't say this, but the poster is saying it, Die Hard 4.0 as it was released in the rest of the world. Uh, Another Zhang Yimou, Raise the Red Lantern.
0: Oh, beautiful fabric. (laughs) I am also uh, Die Hard.
1: I am Die Hard too. Live Free or Die Hard or seven samurai mm.
0: i always feel bad about this but i'm i'm diehard
1: i feel bad too and i'm gonna say diehard <laughs> i just feel i the length of seven samurai weighs heavily on me landed 85 on our chart so there you go it made it pretty high up there that's fantastic how to do on your personal uh list my personal list. I really love this film, Pete. It's pretty high up there. It's one nineteen out of thirty nine hundred eight. Wow, so it's about ninety seven percent on my chart.
0: Wow. I see. I have I not re-ranked it, but this should this should be telling because the first time I ranked it, obviously after not uh, having seen the movie in many years, it still landed at one fifty eight out of one thousand and whatever on my chart. So, it's. Uh, it's pretty high up there. That's an 84, and I think I would probably rate it higher. Um, you know, watching it again. Uh, so it, if I go by the algorithm, this should be a four-star movie. I'm going to give it a four and a half, uh, minus half star for my few little quibbles about editing and camera and sloppiness there that I perceived as sloppiness and probably just didn't understand. And and you know that natural gas thing. Let's throw that in there too.
1: This, uh, yeah. This is one of those films where I do have a few little issues. Um, it, it's nothing that stops me from enjoying it, but I still give it a four and a half. So, and I think a lot of that is like I, I feel like on another day I couldn't give this given this a five star. But I feel like you know, Die Hard is is such a you know perfect film for me. I have a hard time putting it at the same. Place as that film, which is, may seem silly, but that's in my head how it works. So it's four and a half with a
0: like. Yeah, right. This is this is the thing. If you're gonna, this is the if you're gonna shoot for the king, don't miss uh, kind yeah. of a, a kind of a movie. And it, there are a few things it missed, but it's so fun. We so much fun. we are about to wrap up our Die Hard series. Possibly, oh, who knows possibly. what the future will bring? But at least movies that exist and aren't fantasies. We're wrapping it up next week, right?
1: we are we are going to be finishing the franchise Uh, it's it's crazy to say but we are actually ending it Uh, we're gonna be jumping to the 2013 release of a good day to die hard it's the as of now the final in the franchise directed by John Moore that's how we're gonna be ending the uh, the series
0: (laughs) totally not sure how to take how you said that That's how we're going to be ending the series.
1: <laughs> well, I can, uh, I, I really, I shouldn't reveal anything now that I finally have watched yeah. The good Day to Die Hard. No, so you shouldn't, be, but uh, you already did. Interesting, Who knew? It'll be interesting to
0: discuss next week. <laughs> Code for, oh, I hated it. <sighs> oh. One-star Amazon reviews are too good. <laughs> well this has been a lot of fun everybody thanks so much for downloading listening to this show we sure appreciate it uh until we next week you know the drill when the movie ends our conversation begins (laughs) Amazon giveth handy.
1: As Amazon always doeth.
0: Uh, there are some people who feel very strongly about their hate for this movie. Oh. And yeah. and not just there, their there hate for the our... for the you know, hate for the the blue the DVD. Like the right. Amazon delivery of it. They really hate this movie.
1: Like they write the and write and write. Yeah. Very very a lot of exposition.
0: Possibly the <laughs> long just in general, the the longest trending negative reviews we've seen. Oh my! On, on this particular movie. This is really interesting. I've got one from uh, Randy who says it's a one-star worst screen sp- screenplay ever. Mark Bomback wrote the story and screenplay trite and Marvel comic book writing. I do not see how a mature human being can sit through this movie. I only made it through the first 15 minutes. Bomback should have gone to France and hired any third-rate scriptwriter to help him improve the script. Terrible. Hmm. Now, Andy, there are a few things I'd like to point out here. Yes. Why are all the third rate script
1: writers in France? <laughs> I, I'm guessing it has to do with the fact that the villains were French.
0: <laughs> the thugs. But the villains were not French.
1: Well, the thugs. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. Maybe the thugs, or maybe the person knows of some thug French writers.
0: Well, I'm going to say that know. was a one star element in a one star review. Also, <laughs> M- Marvel comic book writing, please. That's, uh, that seems to be uh, hitting below the belt a little bit. And really, he's insulting uh, us. It's Just insulting everybody. Unless we don't categorize our, ourselves as mature human beings. Maybe, maybe we're just not. <laughs> maybe I should look in a mirror. <laughs> All right. What's yours?
1: Well, I got a one star by Pat the Rat, who says RoboCop meets Austin Powers. This is one of the dumbest movies I have ever seen. I realize it's Die Hard, but I was but w- while watching it, I kept thinking, "Die already, please." What's worse is people like it. I'm ashamed for my species.
0: Again, why do they have to insult us? Yeah, they're just really, really aggressively angry people, and angry at peop other people who like this, who have a different opinion about this movie. It's a movie. Oh.